Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's going to be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're going to hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk. Nope. we got to sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal, guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. And... I'm here. I'm looking at you through the screen because we are back on the satellite waves all over the world. Were you just trying to rap? Well, you know, we've been doing that at home. (laughs) We've been doing our freestyle where, and I suck real bad. Well, it's good for our brains because it's it's rhyming, it's singing songs. Like I was standing at the kitchen watching the dishing. No. Cleaning the fishing. No. On a mission. Stop. Okay. I did it. I mean, I did it the other night, and all of our kids walked Wait out again. of the room. I am a failure. I'm a failure stop. to my family no. and hip-hop music <laughs> around the world. I think it's just good exercise, you know, for our brain to try to rhyme words. It's like a really I good agree. challenge. You lay down a solid beat, and you try to match it with a rhyming word. That's talent. We're in I mean, a series hard. on abuse, and we're talking about okay, misuse. Stop. Okay. Okay. We're we're going to turn the corner here. Okay. Yes, we are in a series on abuse. It has been a very powerful series. Yes. We have had incredible feedback. We've had incredible um, we've guests. Had we've had phenomenal I mean, the, guests. the knowledge they're dropping is just, you can't even pay for this. It's so good. It's just It's priceless. so great. And I will say that all of these individuals, first of all, um, are doing this because they care about this issue, not because we're paying them to be on our, there's no like great (laughs) pay that they get out of being on our podcast. Um, And they're doing this because they care about the work that they do. All of my very favorite experts it's taken me years to get them to jump on board. They're actually very like red as they're like, Ooh, I just, I'm yeah, cringing. They're all scared. They're nauseous. The and, and they're, they're like, amazing. what's going on? And they're amazing. Like y'all hold, We're you like, make space for the trauma of the world, but you can't come on our damn podcast and talk about your experience without being nauseous or crazy or whatever. <laughs> what in the world is happening in the world in 2020? And so... Without further ado, our reluctant expert here on our podcast today is our friend, our mentor from afar, our wise counsel, um, and just an all-around delightful human, just human, no pedestal here. Um, This is just respect for um, our guest today. And so welcome to the show, Bonnie Martin, therapist, therapist soup, therapy supervisor. You've got a list. You've worked with hundreds of human trafficking victims and experts in our field, which is how we got to know you. We are so glad you're on the show today. Thank you for having me, even though I didn't want to be here. (laughs) (laughs) And I think maybe to speak to a little bit of that, you know, this topic is 
it's, it's very intimate, you know, so when you're in, when you're in a therapy session or when you're walking alongside someone who is in this type of abuse, especially the type we're going to talk about today, it's very hard sometimes to find the words, um, to talk about when you're actually doing the work. It's, it's hard to talk about, not hard emotionally, but hard Mm. to convey the depth of the dysfunction and the unhealthy patterns and what it does to somebody on the receiving end of, of this, of, you know, more covert abuse tactics. So I'm going to do the best I can to step (laughs) out of my therapy office and talk about, you know, what it's like and how somebody just listening who may not have a therapist may not be able Mm -hmm. to afford therapy they find themselves in relationship with somebody and they're, and they're feeling so much ter- inner turmoil that they don't know how mm-hmm. to put their finger on it. They don't know how to express it. Or somebody is a loved one and you're watching them in this relationship and you're like, ooh, ooh, I don't think this is good. And I see this person changing in a not good way right in front of my eyes. And so well, let's have at it. Yeah. So we're talking about emotional abuse today, and it is one of those forms that is often hard um, that to quantify because, you know, like I said with another expert um, who was on our show, with physical abuse, there's scars, there's bruises, there's trauma external of us, but emotional abuse is so internal. It's so covert sometimes. Um, that's, that's the point of it. I mean, really... It's how um, manipulative and abusers gain control. And sometimes they may not even fully be aware that they're doing it. This may be a pattern that they're also stuck in. Um, so let's define and then contextualize. Like, But let's define, put language to, like, what is emotional abuse? Yeah, and I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit, too, about how it, why it's so confusing. Um, but emotional abuse, you know, uses certain tactics uh, and covert abusers can um, hide these tactics with mixed signals, right? So they can they can be very concerning and loving and charming. They can have like what appears to be empathy and trustworthiness. They can be very very um, easygoing and likable, especially to mm. other people. And they can even pretend to be your biggest supporter. Uh, and at the mm. same time. These tactics, which generally stay hidden for the beginning of a relationship, they're not, they're not right out there in the beginning. Um, and we can talk a little bit about then later on, like why that the first months of a relationship, why people stay in these relationships so much longer, you know, and what happens with um, the time frame of which the covert abuse starts to emerge. But ultimately, what emotional abuse seeks to do is to um, get us to doubt ourselves, get us to mm-hmm. doubt our perceptions. Um, all the tactics are used so that we will take on our abuser's narrative and their thoughts mm-hmm. and their perspectives um, about the relationship, about him or her, and about ourselves. So ultimately, like the three messages of emotional abuse is don't think, don't feel, don't speak. So if I can, you know, what you're thinking is wrong, what you're feeling is wrong. And if you say what you feel and what you think, and they're wrong, I'm going to make sure that you never 
want to voice them again, right? So it just silences the victim. And what love says, right? So there's great fear. You can always measure emotional abuse by the amount. I always ask my clients, no matter how big or small, right? If like, oh, I want to go on a, on a trip away with my family and I'm a, you know, I don't know how they're going to respond if I say I want to go away for a week. My question always is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I want him, I don't want him to make, I don't want him to feel like I'm abandoning him. And, you know, he does have this mm-hmm. big work event. And so at the end, you know, cause you can get very confused as to what's right and what's wrong in that situation. But I always ask my clients, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Because what you would do if you weren't afraid is the very essence of who you are. Mm-hmm. And what love says is love says, even if I don't agree with you, think, feel, and speak. What you feel matters, what you think mm. matters, and what you have to say matters. And so no, no matter how intense a conflict can be with someone, if they're communicating to you, your thoughts matter, your feelings matter, and let's have at this, like tell me how you feel, then that's just conflict that might need some skill building, right? When a couple's just yeah. fighting and yeah. it's just, you don't know how to do conflict well. And there are a lot of people that can teach you how to do conflict well, but it's when that other person, and it could be an employer. It could be, it could be, uh, you know, a, a family member. It, it could be a pastor. A pastor. It so could, is, yeah. is it born from the abuser perspective? Is it born out of control? Is the, is the abuser wanting to control Absolutely. The, the outcome, right? Just the outcome. Then people say, oh, they just trying to control you. They don't really care about you. They just want to control the outcome. <laughs> the, out, the outcome mm. is what matters. Like, I don't care about They'll just, I mean, if you leave in a, a, somebody who's abusive and controlling, they're just going to find somebody else. Like, it's not controlling you that they care so much about. Although it can go very wrong that way. Like when you hear about people killing their object of Mm. obsession and then killing Mm -hmm. themselves like that then they are obsessed with that one person but the control is the outcome and that's why Mm. the tactics you know there are a lot of tactics and they get more and more intense if if the the person the the victim of the abuse is trying so hard to have an outcome that is consistent with the way they want to live their life or consistent with the way they see themselves and when that, that person's dignity then is at stake, they try to push back. Ultimately, what mm. all abuse is, and the best way to define emotional abuse is um, I've set a boundary that I need to set for myself, and that person will not honor that boundary, does not honor. It's about boundaries. And, and so abusers just don't see boundaries, and if they see them, don't care about them. Okay, this is some incredible context. I think you've already given us some real key indicators of things that we might be seeing in um, in someone. We could be seeing in our own relationships um, with caregivers or our childhood or our church context as we talked about this because honestly, that is what's hard also about spiritual emotional abuse is that so often these Places, these institutions, whether it's marriage or family or school or coaching or um, sports, um, spiritual formation can sometimes be so focused on or jobs on on the outcome. I mean, so focused on what are we producing here? What are we, 
and and how can it make us look good? How can it make the family look good? How can it make the church look good? How can it make the sports team look good? How can it make... And so at all costs, you know, we're asking people to give up parts of themselves for an, an outcome. And that is abusive. You know, if our places of work, if our place, if our churches, our places of faith or our marriages are going to be flourishing, then being able to be fully alive and fully unafraid in those spaces, that's the only way we're actually going to get the best outcome. Because the, the catch-22 in this is that you don't flourish when, when it's a hyper-control environment. Like all of Brene Brown's research, I think of that. I'm like, yeah, I mean, you're just, you're, you're fighting it. You end up fighting against yourself. What are some of, um, let's talk about tactics for a little bit about what are abusers kind of using to control? You mentioned a few things, but like kind of, let's talk through there about what are they saying or what are they not saying? Um, how would that actually play out? What are some of these tactics that people Well, I think emotional abuse can be so nonverbal, right? So there are all the tactics of verbal abuse, um, and you can find exhaustive lists on a Google search. But maybe to differentiate what, what can make emotional abuse stand out are the nonverbals. And it can, be, it can mm. be tone of voice. You can say the same thing you know, with a different tone of voice that can be um, totally like emotionally uh, damaging to someone. Um, so like a condescending or patronizing tone of voice that says, you know, you know, I can always count on you or someone can say, well, you know, I can always count on you. And it's, it's just this tone with a bite in it. That's sarcastic and, um, and critical, uh, or just like that vocal tones that don't match the words being used, um, or an Mm. air of superiority. It's always a, I know what's best for you. Uh, and you, you can't think right, or you can't think for yourself. Um, it's, it is always telling you again, like how you should feel or what you should think. And so that list can be exhaustive. Um, there's a, there's a great book that was written, uh, by Patricia Evans. There are a couple of people in the field. I'll throw their names out. And if somebody listening wants to really do a deep dive and get help for themselves, Patricia Evans has been, um, an expert in the verbal abuse community for a very long time, but she wrote one book and whether it's male or female doesn't matter. I just want people to know about the back of her book, The Verbally Abusive Man. She she goes through this exhaustive list of things that people say and the way they say them or things that they do. Um, But Mm. it can be smirks or frowns or shrugs. It can be a sigh. It can be Mm. just a turning away of the body or an eye, you know, rolling of the eyes or different disapproving looks um, or avoiding uh, eye, ca- eye contact altogether. And why mm-hmm. those things can be so damaging is unlike verbal abuse, when I verbally abuse you, I'm deeming you worthy of my time and attention. Mm-hmm. When somebody uses a covert abuse tactic that ghosts you as you're right in the room with them, in essence, what they're saying is you are not worthy to be recognized mm-hmm. as a human being in my presence Mm -hmm. right now. Like you, you have such little value and worth 
that my words are not mm. even worth taking their time and my, my looks are not even worth a glance at you. And so it's a mm. real powerful way that emotional abusers can control a victim um, who loves them, right? Or who wants to please mm. them. So let's talk a little bit about people who, who pray, who are, are prey for emotional yes. abusers. Yes. Um, because yes. sometimes, I mean, the tactics, uh, we can continue to go down some more like gaslighting we can talk about and scapegoating mm-hmm. we can talk about. Um, I love John Gottman in the Gottman mm-hmm. Institute has the four horsemen. Yeah. Now he never uses the term abuse. But the four horsemen are tactics that are, are uh, research-backed. So this is why mm-hmm. um, relationships end, these four things. And I think mm-hmm. they're very much worth looking at for people. And that's some um, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. And that last one, that stonewalling, is that absence of any interaction. You're really, it's like the lowest blow ever is the silent treatment. Mm-hmm. Because you're erasing someone's humanity. That's hard to hear because I got to be honest. I'm an expert professional mm-hmm. stonewaller. Mm-hmm. You're, Men learn yeah, to do you're this. You're erasing somebody's humanity right when they're sitting mm-hmm. right next to you. And, not, and, I, I, and I'm not even intending to do that. Well, you're probably going into the fight, flight, freeze. You're just going into flight and freeze mode. Mm-hmm. And when you love somebody and that's your default, you go into that f- either the flight, you know, you either just run away mm-hmm. and like, I can't handle this. I'm walking out of the room or you go into the freeze mode where you literally lose your words. If that's you, then what's important is your partner know that and just say, hey, when I get really under stress, I go into flight and I go into freeze and I need, you know, just know that and we'll have this, like, I need a half hour, I need 20 minutes, and then we're going to come back and try this again. So it doesn't appear to be that you are using it as a ways of punishing because sometimes they, now we go into attachment mm. theory. So many overlays here because somebody who has avoidant style in conflict, like conflict ha- hits, I'm going to fl- flee, I'm going to freeze. The other person might be an anxious attachment or secure, but then goes anxious. And when that person mm-hmm. pulls away, they get even more panicky and goes after them. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you set up this cycle of the person who's trying to like disengage and the person read the other person reads the disengagement as you don't care about me and they go after them even more. Or then mm-hmm. the, the story that they tell themselves about that disengagement is he doesn't care about me, he doesn't love mm-hmm. me. Yeah. So let's talk about the prey oh, then. Yeah. Who who yeah. is who is set up really? What's the setup for the, the setup prey? for the prey? Are generally people a, a lot of people will come from environments where they grew up and they couldn't have healthy boundaries as children and teenagers. So what so that what that look looks like, like we hear that yeah around. what that looks like is just a, a, a verbal, emotional, sexual, financial. Uh, chaos, disruption, abuse in the home growing up. So, so no didn't mean no for a child. Like you were a child and you said no and somebody ignored that no. Or stop mm-hmm. means stop, right? And, if, and it could be any. It could be a, a sibling bullying situation. Um, it can also not just be that. It could be a home where there was a sibling or a parent who was mentally or physically ill, terminally ill, um, special needs, where all the focus really went on 
someone else in the family and why that happens, uh, how, how it comes about that it makes people vulnerable is their needs get circumvented by someone else. And that that's the norm for the family. And so when that happens, that, that child, the message they receive is your needs don't matter as much as so-and-so's or your, your needs always come secondary. And in order to get your needs met, you have to be incredibly, um, people pleasing, high performing, compliant, right? Like a lot of children who grew up in those environments learned to get their needs met by taking care of the family, by being a high performer, by being a people pleaser. And so what, and they're also, what happens is then we all have a bullshit meter. Mm-hmm. And when we're gro- ro- we're being raised in this environment, like we have to put up with more bullshit than anybody should ever put up with. You should not, mm-hmm. as a child, put up with your brothers crawling in bed with you and fondling you at night. You should not put up with that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so if you yeah. have to put up with that, your BS meter gets broken. You don't mm-hmm. know that you can set boundaries and where you should set boundaries and what that looks like. So then you become an adult. And you put up with more BS than anybody should ever put up with because that's your norm. Yeah. Or I just want to even say too, the circumventing of needs is even huge in those who are listening, who are a part of faith-based communities where the ministry becomes the need that is going to get met, where the stray women off the street are living in your home and you just have to put Well, up scripture with it. is used. Right. Scripture is used to say, hey, you know, um, uh, you know, you just sacrifice better to give uh, you sacrifice, Um, um, lay down your life, you know, for for like Christ laid down his it that was preached to me. It was the environment I grew up in. And especially Mm -hmm. as a female, I think that's very heavy, Um, you know, layers of that, of just sacrificing everything. and it can also be it can also be um, the family name is the is the need to uphold this legacy this projection of our family doesn't do X Y or Z or this is the need no we're doing it because this is family damn it get in the car I don't care if you don't want to hug Uncle Bob he's your yeah, family that's right <laughs> that's like, right yeah you know but I mean always the need is out an outside need is greater than an inside need and so children yeah. raised in those environments and adolescents raised in those environments you, you grow into an adult where your inner message system is weakened by all that experience there might be this gut feeling like hey I should be able to you know make this decision to stand up for myself um, and have my needs met but environment has taught you differently. And so if that's the way you're going through life, generally, generally the, the prey are incredibly empathetic people too. So here's another way it can happen. Somebody on high on empathy will get in a relationship with somebody low on empathy, but they don't know that person's low on empathy because they have enough empathy for the two of them. <laughs> and they don't realize that they're the one that is doing all of the kind of caretaking emotionally of the relationship until they're in it for, I don't know, somewhere between six and 12 months. Um, and they start to, some people don't realize it for a long, long, long time, um, depending mm-hmm. on the relationship. Because I think what makes emotional abuse so difficult too is that there are mixed signals. The relationship isn't all bad. 
Do you think that we all have participated in emotional abuse of some sort? No. I mean, I think we Mm. all can be, can be harmful in the way we communicate in conflict. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that's, um, the word abuse. So let's say you're listening and you are in a relationship Mm -hmm. with somebody who, you know, uses really dirty tactics and makes you feel crazy. It makes you feel unheard. And you're, you're sacrificing way more, um, of yourself than you feel like you, you probably should be, but you want to stay in that relationship. If you use the term verbal or emotional abuse to that person, it's just going to do, it's just, it's going (laughs) to not go well, right? So you just say, that's an emotional abuse tactic. And don't you use it on me? Not recommended if you want to work on a relationship. Um, I, but what you can say is, you know, this is, you can call out the tactic and say, this is an, this incident, you know, I'm, is gaslighting me and I'm not going to stand mm. for it. And so, mm. you know, when we start talking about what somebody can do in a relationship, using the term abuse, if you want to try to change the dynamics, it only takes one person to change the dynamics of a relationship. So let's say you're with somebody who uses these tactics um, and you don't want to use the term abuse because if you do, you know, it, it might cause a bigger wedge between the two of you, what you can do is still address the behaviors without using the term. And many of mm-hmm. us, so we're born with a toolbox to deal with conflict. Mm-hmm. And in that toolbox, when we're growing up, goes all the tools of our family. So if my father used a hammer in conflict, a hammer's in my toolbox. I get, I get married or I go in the workplace or I'm in college dorm and I get in conflict. I don't know what to do. I open up that toolbox and I'm going to go grab the only tools that are in there. So all of us have to look at how our family did conflict and get rid of tools that don't serve us well and replace them with better tools. I think the key that you, and Brett, it was a great question because there are some people who, you know, would, would say and would acknowledge, yes, I mean, saying those things is abusive and I need to own that. Um, and then, but what you're talking about, Bonnie, is that we can all do harm. We, we can all participate in harm, but the difference is if you bring that harmful behavior up to someone who truly loves you, they will seek to repair. They will seek to change. Um, and if their ego strong enough. Yeah. If their ego strong enough, because I think what happens, these tactics are all used to hide someone's fragile ego. And so their ego has to be strong enough to withstand the, the scrutiny of their behavior and hear that they're wrong. Many people who use these tactics never admit they're wrong. There's, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a psychological um, issue on the part of this person that will not allow them to, there's not an integration, right? Yeah. So they yeah. just, yeah. it's always your fault. There's never an apology. So all that somebody who is a victim of it can do is set a hard boundaries and then be willing to walk away from the relationship if they need to. And that's what's hard, right? I think a lot of people just don't want to hear that. They want, they want to know, well, they can change, right? And I'm like, I don't know. You know but some, I do want to give hope. People yeah. can change this. Um, if, if you learn as somebody 
who's the prey, if you learn how to communicate in a way that is non-emotional, non-negotiable, um, here's mm -hmm. the hard truth. And I'll never forget when I was a much younger woman and I was told this about mm -hmm. my own life because I had a broken BS meter and lots of empathy. So, you know, mm -hmm. and, sh and the, the, the message, you know, you just, there can be a growing resentment in the person mm -hmm. who's the prey, not realizing what the resentment's about. And, um, I was told that resentment is always on me. Resentment is, is like a thermometer when you have a fever the thermometer tells you there's an infection in the body. The thermometer shows the fever. The fever shows the infection. Resentment shows the, the fever, right? And, the, and mm -hmm. the, the resentment shows the problem. The problem shows the cause, the illness. Mm -hmm. And so resentment is always that I'm allowing something to happen I shouldn't allow happen. Resentment's on me. Mm. I, and then the, the second thing that was told to me is I, I teach people how to treat me. And if I don't like the way I'm being treated, it's because I'm a poor teacher. I haven't taught them properly. So when I learn to set boundaries and hold those boundaries, I'm teaching someone how they can treat me. Now, the hard thing is I have to be able to walk away if that mm. person, that organization, that mm -hmm. church is mm -hmm. not for me. And I think mm. that's what's hard, right? It's like mm. people, yeah. people construct rules of engagement make the mm. world work for them. And sometimes we will be involved in, I, 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 here's how I describe it to my clients. And I do it with their family of origin usually. So I'll give that as an example, right? Dysfunctional family of origin. When you were born, you were plopped down into a room with a table and chairs at a game of life. And this game of life, like you, you were given a piece to play a role to play and the rules mm. of engagement were not designed by you mm. your mom your dad the primary caregivers they they were long there long before you siblings were there long before you they set the rules of engagement and you were just born and mm. plopped in the chair given a piece and said you have to play this game and you have to play this game this way and here's your role in it well now you become an adult and i got to go home for thanksgiving <laughs> and, and my and my clients are all in droves in my office of the holidays like oh I gotta go home and so I say to them the same listen you're an adult now you can take mm -hmm. that game piece that you were given as a child you didn't get to choose these people you didn't get to choose this room you didn't get to choose this chair you didn't choose this game you can put the piece down on the table push your chair away and say hi everyone I'm not playing the game today. <laughs> I'm going to take my chair and I'm going to sit over here and I'm going to talk to you while you play the game. And I might have some turkey and some cranberry and some dressing, but I'm not going to pick up my piece. I'm just going to sit here and let you play the game while I am, you know, talk to you. And then I get up and I'm going to go home to my own game board with the people I chose to be at my table mm, that's, and yeah. the rules that I've chosen for my life. And sometimes you don't know when you join a church or a, a, a sporting team or a group of friends or an intimate partner relationship. You don't know their rules of engagement right off the bat. And I think that's one of the most confusing things for a young married couple. I mean, you know, I mean, Brett and I were babies when oh, we I got knew. married. I knew. I babies. Knew. 
you know, 22 and 24. Like, are you kidding? We didn't know about the rules of engagement. We just knew our Hell, we, we didn't know we had game we pieces. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't know. We didn't even know we were in a game. We're, we're in just, the Hunger Games we is what we realized. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a freeing, empowering, and yet also terrifying to lovingly detach from that game and to unplug, to take your power source internally into your own, into, you know, for me as a woman of faith, it's like, who, who is my God and who am I? Um, who do I want to be? Who, who have I been designed by God to be? Not who does everyone else expect? I'm going to do be. a deep dive right now. Deep, deep dive. Mm-hmm. So talking about the prey coming from a family of origin where their needs weren't met, the message that was sent whether it was meant to be or not, is your needs don't matter. Therefore, you don't matter. So a lot of people raised in these environments have low self-esteem. They hide it with people-pleasing and performance, Mm -hmm. but they have this inner voice that feels like, you know, they're never good enough. And so when, when somebody who is the prey comes along, they're generally very confident, powerful type people, very assured, Mm -hmm. very quick to tell you, right? What to think and how to feel. And that can feel comforting to somebody who Mm -hmm. comes from a lot of chaos. So deep dive. If I believe this person loves me and they're my everything, and it feels so good for somebody to be controlling because nobody, I came from so much chaos. So somebody controlling Mm -hmm. can actually feel comforting. Then that controlling behavior turns toxic to me leaving that relationship has a deeper significance because if I have to admit to myself, this person, I have to walk away from this person. They never, maybe they never loved me. Then it taps Mm. into what I've always believed about myself from the beginning. Right. So that's why it can be super hard to leave these relationships too, because I'm already, I'm already operating from this premise about myself that I'm not Mm -hmm. good enough and that, you know, nobody will ever love me the way that I am. And that, I, you know, I'm going to be mm-hmm. abandoned or rejected again. If I have mm-hmm. to walk away from a relationship that I believed I was loved in, and I have to admit mm-hmm. this person really doesn't care about me, then it, it, it taps into what I've always felt about myself, what I'm trying to, I'm trying to hide and cover up. Mm. It's so painful to let go because of what you're saying, what we've always feared sometimes. And that is the fear of walking away. I can't tell you how many women, I mean, this, this is more powerful than meth. This is more powerful than heroin. This is more powerful than any drug you will ever take because it is so essence well, we were de- we were designed for intimacy we weren't designed for meth right we but you know and going back to what was, i was talking about earlier the, the beginnings of the relationship are critical so whenever i have somebody in my office who's in this type of relationship i always ask them two questions tell me about the beginnings of the relationship and tell me about all the wonderful things about this person because those are the two obstacles so just like cocaine and meth and heroin, when you, when you take a drug, especially for the first time, you get this rush of dopamine, uh, especially with the stimulants. Let's just go with that. You get this rush of dopamine. The brain never forgets that rush. And so the very first time, 
it's called chasing the dragon in my field. Mm-hmm. So you're always after that high. And so if a relationship, the first four to six months, and generally that's the rule of thumb. If you can, what you have in the first four months of relationship is BS. It's just pheromones, <laughs> dopamine. It's like, it's oh, very the text comes in and you get a rush of dopamine immediately. Like it's just so much, you're getting high all the time. And that, that, those chemicals start to even out after about four months in a relationship. And so it's really imperative that you don't do anything like within four months of meeting someone particularly, never believe anybody's as wonderful as you think they are. Um, and mm. then, you know, what you, what you start getting month four to eight is more the real thing. That's good wisdom right yeah. there. Yeah. If you can be with somebody mm-hmm. for four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall, and after four seasons, you pretty much know that person as long as it's not long distance. If it's long distance, none of it matters. I mean, you know, they're very charming sociopaths um, and psychopaths. So, like, you just don't know people. But, but getting around their family, being around their friends. So if the, those strong chemical reactions in the beginning of a relationship, no matter how bad the relationship gets thereafter, the brain keeps thinking it can get back. That that was the real person, right? That was the real person. So we keep thinking, if I could just get back to that, this is the way he really is. He really loves me, blah, blah, blah. He love-bombed me, right? He love-bombed me in the first four months of the relationship. The brain never forgets it. And it keeps trying to get back to that hit of dopamine. Mm. And then, you know, I always ask them too, there must be something so good about this relationship for you to stay in it. And I want to hear Mm. that story. Um, and one thing we, we have to talk about when it comes to being able to separate from toxic people and environments is being financially stable. Because yes. if there's not financial independence, you are yes. really stuck. And so a lot of the work I'll yes. do with my clients is working towards their, ind- their financial independence. They can stay or leave. I don't care as long as they have the choice to. But if they don't have the choice to because yes. of finances. And this is why all those nonprofits out there, they're so wonderful who help, um, victims, uh, you know, with resources and, um, gaining income and education are just vital. You know, when I think about, and I know there are certainly men who are emotionally abused as well and who are empaths as well, who, who marry, you know, who are the passive, (laughs) Um, player in the relationship. But when it comes historically to women's autonomy and women's individuality, we're really working from a deficit because our mothers historically didn't have these conversations about taxes and about the oil changes and about, um, yeah, how to get, I, I mean, I remember props to my dad. I remember before I left for college, he was like, I want you to know how to change a tire and change your own oil. You know, I, I need you to know these things. Um, but those typically weren't, you know, in younger or older generations than us, they, they rarely even had driver's license. My grandmother didn't even get a driver's license until she was married um, and about to, you know, have children. So that kind of autonomy and that ability to know that out in the world, like, I'm going to be okay I'm going to, I don't have to have a man or a partner, um, to eat. And you can, you can have that as long as walking away from somebody who's toxic is not impossible because you're dependent on it. 
Like it's okay not to work. I know a lot of people, you know, would prefer not to, um, as long as you don't end up stuck in, in a relationship where, you know, you're better out, better off sleeping in a tent somewhere than sleeping in bed with somebody who, um, Mm. emotional abuse is so, so damaging in some, Mm -hmm. for many of us in the field, we believe more damaging than physical abuse because mm-hmm. there's no sign you can point to. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you, you can't just point to a black eye, go to school, and you can't just show a broken bone or a fat lip, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's so mentally twisted <laughs> that mm-hmm. it twists mm-hmm. you all up inside. It really mm-hmm. kills the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, it tortures mm-hmm. the soul. And so mm-hmm. if not being financially autonomous um, is really dangerous mm. when if you come up if you come into relationship with somebody who will exploit you. Mm, yes, and speaking of exploitation, um, we you know in our field of work working with women who've been sexually exploited or trafficked, a lot of times these covert ways of relating in this style would be considered a grooming tactic by um, traffickers or um, older men who are seeking sex from minors. Um, A lot of this happening now on social media platforms or gaming sites or chat rooms. And I think it is important um, just to acknowledge that we have to empower like our family systems, our caregiving systems, even if it's foster care, even if it's a school teacher, um, a coach, we have to build up that resilience and that self-confidence and teach our children even how to be aware of, of, these, um, of these tactics. And I guess the best way to be aware of it is to have a core sense of confidence. Which is, it, yes, it, which is why prey are people who don't have a core sense of confidence. Yeah. It's just, it's so important. It's, it's like, and I mean, the research shows it's like one healthy adult, one good, healthy adult in a child's life. That's amazing. Can, can prevent a child from being trafficked. I mean, that's just remarkable. So you could be that one adult in someone's life. Um, you know, when we think about teenagers and adolescents and, um, Maybe what's happening in the home, I recently, I know of a family, um, and I don't want to get too specific because, you know, personal, but um, I, I do know of a family and I'm, I'm watching a child, I'm watching a couple of teenagers right now and, and I'm watching their family systems and I've got some red flags going up. I'm kind of like listening to the conversation around the dinner table and I'm listening to some retelling and the stories that I'm hearing in my home about what's happening in their home. And I'm concerned. I'm concerned about emotional abuse. I mean, I would say I, I am like the, the, the use of threats, the use of you're going to, every time I talk to you, you know, you're going to be here and I'm going to be here. Like just the very, yeah, there's, there's, there's some power plays at hand. What do I, as a mom, I'm just being so real here because like, I know 
there are more moms just like me who are like, that feels strange, but what do I do about that? Can I do anything? Because here I am like a fixer, right? Right? It's very (sighs) challenging when you're dealing with a minor. I'm empathetic. When you're dealing with a minor and they don't have, you know, either a recourse or desire to leave their family of origin, um, it's, it's, it's hard to sit in that space with them while they're still a minor. It's one of the hardest things about working with minors because you can't fix the parent. I mean, but what, wouldn't it be worth sitting those parents down and just having a little, you can try, <laughs> you can try. I can tell you there's a parenting crisis going on as this new knowledge, the neuropsychology of parenting. Um, and what we are now understanding about human development in the brain and children and adolescents, uh, because many of us growing up were raised with really shame tactics, threat yeah. tactics, yeah. physical, physical intimidating tactics. We all were right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some, some of us more aware now than others, and so I think a lot of parents who are not aware are just parenting out of how they were parented. And that's intimidation. And, you know, a lot of these tactics that are used mm-hmm. just to mm-hmm. try to gain power and control. And I think mm-hmm. what you can do when that child is in your presence, at a sleepover or in a ride going to a game, picking up pizza or ice cream, is just modeling. Mm-hmm. And... And treating, you know, I think there are three words that say I love you more than those words I love you. You can say I love you to anybody. Oh, I love you. Um, but three words that you can model for children in these circumstances that they're not hearing at home. Sorry. Please. Thanks. And that establishes that there's no power differential in the dignity of humanity. You're five, you're two, you're 12, 17. One of the hallmarks of emotional abuse is there's no reparation. There's never, sorry, own a voice. I lost my cool. I, I'm sorry that I couldn't talk to you. No, for a few hours after that happened, I just shut down. There's never uh-huh. an apology um, mm. with this type of abuse. Where physical abusers will oftentimes like break down after they they'll be like, "Oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm so sorry." And then and then they repeat it. Right? There's this right. <laughs> really really they'll right. cry and make it about them. Yeah. Um, yes. They buy you a yeah, gift. Yeah, sorry. yeah. I'm sorry with all the with gifts. With emotional abuse, it's very rarely does that ever happen. Usually um, the conflict will occur, the abuse tactics will be used, and then everybody will just forget about it. But the victim never mm. forgets. You mentioned something earlier, well, a few times, and I think it goes into the, these three words, the sorry, please, and thanks. And it takes it takes empathy to be able to do that. So let's spend these mm-hmm. last few minutes talking about the power yeah. of empathy. Well, that just, um, it's just the golden rule, right? Do unto others mm-hmm. as you would have them do unto you. 
And for a lot of emotional abusers, they don't treat anybody else like that except for their family members or closest people to them. So it's almost like, you know, do unto others like you would do your friend Joe, who comes over for coffee every Saturday morning. I think that that, that's, that can clear up some things because so many victims of this kind of abuse, they, they sit in my office like they're totally confused. They're like, but they're so wonderful. Everybody thinks they're so wonderful, but they don't think that they're awful. I'm like, it doesn't matter what other people think, and it doesn't matter what they think matters what you think and it matters what you feel so again like that teenager that's in your car just saying think feel speak think feel Mm. sorry please thanks think feel speak that's the opposite of what emotional abusers do yeah we've heard a lot about empathy in recent years um and especially with the power of Brene Brown's popularity. Everyone's really interested in it. Everybody's learning about it. And yet here we are in a day and age where it's like, still, we're not, at least in America, we're, and it could be globally, but I know for our country right now, there is such a lack of, of empathy for humanity. Um, you know, how do we, how do we get back to that? What's the key to becoming yeah, more empathetic. I don't know if we, we're getting back to anything. I think, no, I think no, an wait, awareness is being <laughs> yeah. raised. And, but I can speak to maybe getting back to a time where we don't feel threatened all the time. And so, you know, when we talk about the parts of the brain, there's that higher part of the brain, that prefrontal cortex, that executive functioner, that self-actualization, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, there's Fowler's stages of faith, uh, mm-hmm. that the less certain I am, the more faith I have, the more certain I am, the less faith I have. So when our mm-hmm. religion, our politics, our public discourse becomes about black and white, right and wrong, we know we're in reptilian brain. We're, there's, a, mm-hmm. there's a depravity of spirit where I, somebody's mm-hmm. going to take away from what I have and I can't afford to give it to them. Empathy says, comes from a generosity of spirit. So it really has to do with the fear response in the brain being activated in such a way as you see other people as a threat to your well-being. Mm. And if you see other people as a threat to your well-being or your way of life or your belief system, then you will have no empathy for them. Mm-hmm. You, you are seeing the glass half empty and those people are going to take more water out of the glass and I have to stop them. So to be empathetic, even if, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a lot of money or a lot of any, I mean, people in dire circumstances can have empathy, but it's just mm-hmm. the way that they view their, uh, their resources or their world around mm-hmm. them that, that, you know, I, I may be hurting, but I can see another human hurting as well. And we all can work towards healing together, not you're the reason I'm hurting. And see, this is what emotional mm-hmm. abusers do. You're the reason. Yeah. You're the reason I'm yeah. upset. You're the reason this isn't working. You're the re- you're, it's your fault. And so it's very similar to what's happening, I think, at a, at a national level where, you know, it's, it's an us-against-them mentality. Mm. And it takes a, a self-actualized person, an ego, a small ego, Mm-hmm. not an ego that's not fragile to say, I'm okay. 
I, I may be struggling, you know, and I may not have all that I need and I'm struggling over here, but, but your existence is not a threat to me. You are not a threat to me. Your way of life is not a threat to me. Your choices are not a threat to me. I can allow you to make your own choices and I make my own choices now. Of course, you know, if there's a boundary that gets crossed, I think we have to be able to differentiate between principles and preferences. And Mm. so for a lot of people, they get them confused Mm. that their Mm -hmm. preferences become their principles. Mm. And it's Mm -hmm. principles are something that hits at, you know, my personal dignity. So dialectal behavioral therapy, when there's conflict, we always look at three things, the goal, the relationship and dignity. And for a lot of relationships, it's like, Oh, Brett wants to get pizza. You want to get Chinese. Mm -hmm. You have two Mm -hmm. different goals. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, you know, one of you is going to give up the goal of what you want to eat for the sake of the relationship. It's going to be me. It's, it's going to, you're going to give it up. Brett's going to give it up. Giving up his pizza for the general so's chicken. <laughs> um, so he, he gives up the pizza for the Chinese for the sake of the relationship. Now in good relationships, that's happening all the time, back and forth, mm-hmm. little things, big things. And no one feels like they're constantly giving up the pepperoni pizza for the general so's chicken. If mm-hmm. one person is constantly giving up the pepperoni pizza for the general so's chicken, mm-hmm. then their dignity mm-hmm. will start to become compromised. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. those boundaries that you have to put in place and say, this is not about pizza and chicken. Mm. This is about a value system that I have Mm -hmm. and a principle that I have and I'm in relationship with you. And so in order Mm -hmm. to make this work, we have to come to an agreement so that my dignity is not at stake. And that's when relationships Mm -hmm. really get tense. Mm -hmm. So, so I think in our society, we've confused things about preferences Mm -hmm. and principles. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've lost sight of seeing one another as brothers and sisters in this journey of humanity. Mm -hmm. There's very Mm -hmm. little, here that we need to be fighting about with the intensity that we are on a, on a public discourse, mm. right? Empathy, yeah, empathy can grow when, I mean, the things that you have alluded to for those of us who maybe come from um, chaotic backgrounds, for those of us who are empathetic and maybe we feel like, gosh, everybody always makes all the decisions for me. Like I somehow, like I'm, I keep running around and yet you're resentful and yet you're angry and your body's having all these stress. You're depressed, you're anxious, whatever it is. Um, one of the ways that I think we can take our core power back and we can build it up is by doing things that are kind for ourselves. Doesn't even cost any money. Like, do you like to write? Sit down, buy yourself a beautiful, just little $5 dollar spot at Target, a pen and paper, journal, write something beautiful. Do you like to go outside? Do you like to do yoga? How can you bring kindness toward yourself? It reduces the fear and then it allows you to give and extend compassion and empathy towards someone else. I think for those of us who would consider ourselves having been a victim of some sort of emotional or physical abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, um, you lose, you you can internalize self-hatred so deeply that you don't even know how to be kind to yourself anymore. 
And it takes such practice, such constant practice to get back to yeah. I love, hear the, to I hear the word guilt way. a lot when people say they feel yeah. it's guilt or they feel guilt in setting boundaries and saying no. They feel guilt in taking care of themselves. There's a lot of guilt involved. And so, you know, therein again lies this very deep psych- psychological wound, um, primal wound, this, this ego, this self that is so um, frail and fragile, where the frail, fragile ego of the prey uh, of the um, of the person who's praying will, yeah, uh, will the, abuser. the abuser will cover the frail ego by being powerful and controlling. I think a lot of high empath people cover up their frail ego by being um, acquiescent and being helpful and and being self sacrificing to our own demise. Right. Like it's not healthy. And just like the abuser is not being healthy by covering their frail ego by being powerful. And so um, this this journey, this work. Yeah. Somehow we got to get off. We got to get off the wheel if you're in that relationship and, and get unstuck. And I think you've mentioned some great resources. And if you've been listening to this podcast and it's perked your ears up to want to dig a little bit deeper, um, we're going to put those resources that Bonnie has given us today on our website um, so that you can hey, explore. Hey, are we, are we wrapping this thing up? I don't I want think to. So. <laughs> okay, I'm looking at I our know, time. We're I just, at an hour. Bonnie, I just love listening to you talk. I'm taking notes. I'm like, I'm like listening to the podcast like I'm listening to it. I know. I want to listen yeah, to you talk. So really, quiet. I want to listen well, to you talk. Well, it's because I'm listening. What questions it's do just... you have? What do you want to talk about, Brett? We need to have a part two, and you need to come back on because dead gummit. It's just. I mean, if you're li- if you're out if you're out there listening, mm. I mean, clearly, <laughs> Bonnie has just a beautiful understanding. Yes, but I think I think what the gift that you are, Bonnie, is that you articulate in such a way that somebody like me can grab onto it. I mean, I got a caveman brain. I'm going to be honest. I'm married to one of the (laughs) deepest wells ever created by God. And she married a caveman who's like, (laughs) like I stonewall because I I still have, I I don't have words. I can't find words. (laughs) You know, that's a nice thing to be able to say, really. You know, I, if you just look at somebody and say, I, I, I've lost my words, but I will find them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Use your words. This is deep work. Listen, growth growth is just deep work. Oh my it gosh. Is. It's just hard. It's just the com- hard. The commitment and to loving well, loving ourselves, loving one another. You know, I think one of the biggest takeaways, I want to encourage you out there listening. I, I think it was so liberating when you said you can put your piece down. And so I want everybody out there to hear that Bonnie Martin mm-hmm. has given all of you permission to put your piece down. And you can stay in the room sometimes. You can visit the game. You can visit the players, but don't ever pick up the piece. Mm. And make sure you drive your own car to the holidays so you can drive away anytime you need to. That's so good. (laughs) Stay in an Airbnb. Do not stay. Do not stay with family. Stay in an Airbnb. Mm. Have your own car. And um, you can visit the people who created the game of your life in your earlier days, but you don't have to play the game anymore. I think and you can create mm-hmm. your own create your own game with the players you want sitting at your table and, I, and the rules you want. I think now more than ever coming up on an election and then we have ho- the holidays on the heels of this election in particular. Mm. 
everybody drive your own damn car. Yeah. <laughs> that's just that's just wisdom for all of us. That's right. That's right. <sighs> drive. Everybody that's a drive, drive your damn car. <laughs> well, you know, props to Uber to living in a stage where it's like get a Lyft or get an Uber. Now that doesn't work if you're like in Podunk, wherever you know. Um, small town, major small towns, but, um, yeah, for the most part, I, it did in, and showing up, but not picking up the piece also doesn't mean that you don't have great love. Well, that's why you show up. It's why you you don't want to leave the people in the game. You don't want to leave the table together. You want to, you, you don't want to leave those people, but you can visit and you yes. can watch the dysfunctional game as it's played sometimes, and you can watch the roles everybody has been given and not pick up your own and not play. You can say, they'll want you to. They'll throw the game piece at you. They'll be like, sit down, sit down, Emily, sit down. Come play the game with us. And you can be like, mm, no, sorry. Thanks, guys. I'm just going to sit over here. Uh, I'm going to hang out with you, but I'm not playing that game. I hope you hear this as just a breath of fresh air as you're listening. I just, I love this permission that you are giving us to really tune in to what's happening in our own bodies, what's happening in our own spirit, um, so that we can just learn to love ourselves and love others in a more empathetic way, in a true way, a true way, not in a way that's participating with harm. Without fear. Without fear. Without fear. Oh my goodness. Such a gift. Bonnie. Any last questions, Brett? So we didn't say this at all, but Bonnie, Bonnie is coming to us live from the nation's capital in Washington, DC. Can you Mm -hmm. give us in five (laughs) words, the climate of your city currently? Um, intense, energetic. Two words here. Pissed off. (laughs) Mm. Um, uh, empowering. There's, mm-hmm. there's uh, living in DC, my, my all my life being from there. Uh, it is a city like no none other, where the common man can grab a sign, can put on some tennis shoes, can march straight up the steps of the Supreme Court or the Capitol building, <laughs> and, yeah. and just say. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And, and, um, it's a, it's a, just an intense time for us as a nation, as we grieve, there's grief and anger. And those are powerful emotions that we don't need to shut down. We need Mm -hmm. to be able to communicate effectively in grief and in anger, but there's a lot of grief and there's a lot of anger and those things are welcome. And I, I think I feel, um, I've come full circle here and in over the years feeling hopeful Mm-hmm. That um, that we're going to make sense of this as a nation, and we're going to come back from this better generations mm-hmm. after us. Um, God, plant, God bless the children. Um, they're going. Mm-hmm. They're going to lead the way, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm feeling more confident about their ability when they mm-hmm. come into age and take power of who they are and how mm-hmm. we've taught them. And so I'm hopeful mm-hmm. for those days. Mm-hmm. Are you hoping to, and so hopeful as you hold those grandbabies of yours? Yes. Oh, oh. Yes. Sweet ones. Yeah. I love seeing those pictures. 
They're amazing. They are. Oxytocin. Oh. That's what they are. Oh. <laughs> so good. That's what they are. They are sheer, they are sheer oxytocin. <laughs> we cannot, oh. we okay. cannot love thank you, you enough. You for having me. And what you all don't know is we had about 20 minutes of technical circusry, <laughs> and we laughed our butts off before we even started. So, oh Bonnie, thank you for sticking out there. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. Yes. Because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info. And visit the website at JesusSaidLove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.